So we're doing a, a church and sing. God, I hope that we have in Christ. God, I pray that we are satisfied fully in Christ. Repeat the offices that we were just talking about. To be able to call someone and say, hey, this needs to happen and not have to think about it. So I praise God for those, those who serve in that capacity as well. So today we're starting our Christmas series, just taking these next few weeks, this Advent series to reflect upon what God has done for us. We're going to be in three passages this week. Uh, Isaiah 7, which is on page 338 of that blue uh, Bible in the chair in front of you. Well, then we're going to switch over to Micah 5, which is on page 454 of that page, of, of that same book, of same Bible. And then we're going to switch back over to Isaiah 9. So you're going to have to keep your fingers in them. If you have one of those fancy Bibles with the ribbons in them, you can use those. But it's important for us as Christians to have a main diet of what is called expository preaching, which is talking about large parts of God's word and seeking to preach the main points of those passages. That's what we did with Acts. Um, that's what we seek to do most of the time. But every once in a while, it's nice to kind of take a little bit of a breath and do what's called a topical sermon, which is more talking about getting other passages to kind of prove a point. Do you see the difference? Expository preaching is about seeking to preach the points of the passage, and topical is all about taking a point and finding passages to support that point. And that's what we're going to be doing this Christmas, because really there's Luke 2, um, and it's kind of hard to kind of keep flushing that out for four weeks, and I know I'm probably going to have a mutiny if I did that. But if you have your Bibles with you, please continue to do that as we look at this Christmas series called Embracing the Promise. And looking at how Christmas reminds us of how these promises that we see throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament bring us hope and help us in our faith today. So in Isaiah, we see Isaiah first. And Isaiah was first called into ministry in 740 B.C.-ish. Okay? But this part of his writing was actually around 735 B.C.-ish. B.C., uh, for those who are old like me means before christ i have no idea what it means now but it's like bce or something like that um but so we're talking about 700 years before jesus was born that these were written and even as he wrote them they were as a great amount of hope to a destitute people even as we look at michael which is written about the same period of time we're looking at 700 years ish between these two things that are happening. And let me ask you this question. As we think about promises made and how we can embrace them, how does someone who has always kept a promise change how you will trust them in the future? Today we will re remind, remind ourselves of these things as we look at three prophecies about Jesus' birth and how he fulfills them and what that means for us today. These are three very familiar passages for us, which is great because it's good to remind ourselves of these things as we come together. But as we do that, let me pray. Awesome God, we just come together to make much of you, to love you. 
And Lord, there is no possible way that I can do this on my own. So Lord, will you do this? By your grace, Lord, will you enable me to preach so that you are indeed glorified? Lord, please use this sermon to bring glory to your name and joy to your people and salvation to the lost. So in Isaiah 7, verse 14, we see a sign of the coming promise. I think some of us should be able to do this all by heart, but let's do this. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Something that we need to understand, especially when we're doing a topical series, is that context is important because context is king. As I was always told when I was growing up in Sunday school, the context is king. So let's talk about some of the verses that are around Isaiah 7, verse 14. There's a king named Ahaz. And let me ask, let me just say this right out. He was a jerk. In fact, the Bible describes him as one who did evil in the eyes of God. So just the fact that they're going to have this conversation is showing a lot of God's grace. Okay? Isaiah is faced with the threats of an attack from the northern kingdom of Israel, along with their buddies, the Syrians. They all wanted to join in, the three of them. He wa- they wanted Judea to be part of this, to go and attack essentially the United States of America of the time, Assyria. And he's kind of freaking out. Well, I don't want to do that. What do I do? So what does he do? Who does he trust? Who does he go to for help? So God says in verse 9, he says, If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. And that is a really just good proverb just in general for us as Christians. The object of our faith is what allows us to be firm as we continue to be faithful to God. This is a faith of knowing God's promise. It's about knowing the truth and trusting God to keep his promise. The threat that Ahaz faced wasn't really the threat, but an opportunity to trust God and to watch how God was going to work. So God says to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord. Notice those letters in your English translation. They're all in caps, and that's important. At least... In my translation, it says it's all in caps. And it's all in caps because it's the personal name of God. It's a reminder. Every time we see the all caps Lord, it means Yahweh. And it's important to understand this. Because why does God use his personal name here in this prophecy? Because it's communicating something very important to Ahaz and to us as God makes a promise. Yahweh simply means I am. It is the great, he is the great I am. But that's a loaded statement, statement in itself. It is talking about God's self-existence and eternal nature. See, if you've worked in Sunday school or if you have children, you've been faced with this ultimate question. Very philosophical. Because a child understands this. Who made God? Right? Every person who's interacted with a child at some point should have received that question. I know, I have gotten it three times. But here's the thing, God has no beginning. So the wisest way to answer that question to a child or to anybody who asks that question is this. God is simply. He is simply there. He is always 
He always was. Because that's the answer God gives when he gives his name. I am. He is saying, I always was and I always will be. God has no beginning and leave it at that. And if God has... If God always was, he always will be. God simply is. God always was, which means he is the absolute reality, meaning that there was nothing before him. See, it's, it's odd for me. I don't know about you, but when I think about eternity, I can think of eternity future like that's not a problem for me. But to come and think about eternity past, that like breaks my mind. But God always was. He simply is. If God didn't will it or make it, it didn't happen and wasn't made. Before anything, there was only God, the triune God. And if that is the case, then God is completely independent. He doesn't depend on anything. If that is the case, then when that means that anything that is not God is totally dependent upon God which means that the next beautiful sunset that you see or the beautiful fresh snow that falls, and I will say the beautiful fresh snow because I think it's a beautiful thing, whatever you find beautiful, the next time you see it, to your husbands, you should lean over and say, it's you, babe. <laughs> it is nothing compared to God. Nothing compared to God. That is what Yahweh means. And if God always was, that means that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means that the promises he made seven years before Jesus will happen. The name Yahweh means that he is the standard of truth, goodness, and beauty. It means that nothing holds him back from accomplishing his will. It means that he is the most valuable reality and person in the entire universe. He is the one who is worthy. So when we ask, is he worthy? The obvious answer should always be a resounding yes. So with the simple name, God says all of this to Ahaz. And he says to him, ask me. It's almost a dare. God is calling Ahaz to trust him. So God says, ask me. Ask me for something that only I can do. A sign that says, I will accomplish all that I said I will do. I will protect you. Not to Syria, who Ahaz actually goes to. All you need to do, Ahaz, he says, is trust me, Yahweh. Have I not proven myself? How I brought you out of Egypt. How I brought you into the promised land. Have I not proven myself to you over and over and over again? Ask me a sign, he says. Provide, and I will even give you a sign that you didn't even ask, have the guts to ask for to prove it. I love Isaiah 7 because God gives two promises in there. Ahaz in verse 12, Ahaz says, he tries to face, uh, he tries to save his face by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, do not put the Lord your God to test. So he says, well, I'm not going to test you, God, because, you know, this is the one time I'm actually going to be obedient to your word. Which is because he's already made up his mind as to who he's going to trust. 
And we know the outcome of what happens because we can flip forward in history. Ahaz doesn't believe God can do what he says he can do, so he puts his trust in Assyria as another nation. He puts his trust in men and horses rather than in the one who created all of those things. He puts his faith and his trust in the things that are actually dependent upon the one who created them. The one who always was and always will be, he rejects. It's in this section of Isaiah that we see God's promise of a savior and a sign will be how, he, uh, how a, a, a savior is born. It is in this conversation with the king Ahaz of Judea that God begins to call on this evil king and his evil people to, of Judea to trust him. He says, this is who I am. I am Yahweh. And I'll even prove it to you. Ask for a sign. So in verse 13, God challenges Ahaz. You've asked, me, you've asked mere men for help. Why not ask me? And that's when we get to verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God is giving the sign, one that will be more immediate, has actually promised as well. God actually says that before a child that is conceived turns 12, these nations that are threatening you will cease to exist. And we know history. We can go back and read it. Both Israel and Syria cease to exist. Because Assyria goes in there and wipes them out and they will never be heard of ever again. The nations that Ahaz is so worried about will no longer be there. So even though God promises that Emmanuel, God with us, will come, he won't come for another 70, 700 years, but he provides even a more immediate prophecy, which he does provide. This will happen as a virgin shall conceive. What better than something that is impossible? I understand someone's going to come to me and be like, well, you could do this technology out there that could allow this to happen. I'm like, yeah, but not 2,700 years ago. Biology hasn't changed a lot, folks. So the concept, 2,700 years ago, of a virgin having a baby without a man is impossible. But is there anything impossible for God? Is there anything impossible for Yahweh? Who will provide this sign? God will. He says the Lord himself will provide it. Yahweh will be the one who will give the sign, which means, again, this will happen. And unfortunately, as I've been saying, we know that Ahaz and Judea don't trust God in this moment. They have become so callous that they turn their backs on the God who created all things, who's called them out of Egypt, who brought them into the promised land. But God will still fulfill his promise, even though they remain unfaithful. They didn't believe God would do what he said he would do and ran to the people that God said not to. For us today, we witness the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, that they waited for. 700 years later, born to the virgin. And his name will be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. 
God will be with his people. And we see the fulfillment of that in Matthew 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's promise to dwell with his people has been fulfilled in Christ. God added to himself humanity, and he is the same in every way except one. He has not committed sin. As Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Which I may remind you that to be tempted in every way that we have, but has never caved to that pressure, means he has sustained more pressure than you and I when it comes to temptation, because we always seem to give in. But he has not once. He has remained sinless. The one who made the promise provided the way for the promise to be fulfilled. The promise is Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. In Jesus, God walked with us and talked with us. And he did the same way he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When Jesus was born of the Virgin, his arrival showed all of us that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Jesus was not just a sign of God with us like the child born in the time of Ahaz. He was God with us in person. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is not a partial revelation of God with us. Jesus is God with us in his fullness. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus left the glories of heaven and took on the form of a servant so that he could identify with us in our day-to-day human struggles. Is this not an amazing sense of comfort for us, brothers and sisters? That we don't just, we don't worship some God who doesn't understand. We worship a God who can sympathize. You know, sometimes I try to be careful with using these words when I'm talking with people. Yeah, I totally understand what you're going through. Well, the reality is I don't. But I have a God who does. Which means I can cry out to him in any sense, in every time, in any part of my life. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He is our Savior. God sent his son to live among us and die for us on the cross. Through Christ's shed blood, we can be reconciled to God. And we are born of his spirit. Christ comes to live in us. And because Jesus is our Emmanuel, he will be with us forever. After his resurrection from the dead, before Jesus returned to the Father, he made a very specific promise. We always go to uh, Matthew 28, right? Matthew 28, 18, the following, and following verses talk about the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And sometimes we forget the end promise. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. He is Emmanuel. God made a promise. He made a prophecy. He fulfilled it in Christ. And as Romans 8 says, there is nothing that can separate us from the God, us from God and his love for us in Christ. So 700 years before it happened, 
God made a promise that he would send a savior, a Messiah, who would be the shepherd king to his people, who would dwell with his people. And the prophecy was fulfilled through the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose from the dead. And Jesus fulfills the promises, meaning we can embrace the promise as we continue to walk through this age, knowing that God is with us in all circumstances. This presence of God with his people, this gives us comfort and guidance and assurance, especially during hard times. God is faithful because he has kept his promise. We can trust him to keep them in the present and the future. How does this promise of God fulfilling his promise through sending the promised Messiah give you hope on this Christmas season? But as we see, there's not just one promise. Because God also made a uh, prophecy about even the location of which this Messiah would be born. And that we go all the way to Micah 5 verse 2, which says this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judea, from you shall come forth for me one who is set to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Remember, context is important, right? So here Israel is faced with the prophecy that God will send their enemies to destroy their cities and defile their temple and humiliate their king. I was listening to a sermon this week uh, by a man named Woody Bachman, and he, he said something that just was so true. Uh, God, doesn't, God is often the cause of oppression, and we see that right here. Israel is faced with invasion from their enemies and the defilement of their temple because of their sin. But God will raise up for himself a true king of true Israel, and he won't be born in some sort of prestigious palace. He won't be born in like something like Buckingham Castle. He, he won't be born in a place of power, but very much the opposite. In some backwater, unimpressive, small town that no one comes from called Bethlehem. He will fulfill the promise God made in Genesis 3, verse 15, where he will bruise the head of the serpent. He will be the one who will reconcile God and man. Here's the problem, though, that we will see how Israel is continuously disobedient, and God will bring judgment on them as Israel will be without a king and will be ruled by their enemies. But this will end when God will graciously raise up the Messiah who will restore his people. King David came from some sort of obscure town called Bethlehem. And just like how God will make a great king from obscurity, God will do the same with the Messiah. And what's amazing is that this promise is on God to complete. All of God's promises are not based upon my ability to fulfill them, but upon the one who created all things' ability to fulfill them. This is why I'm really looking forward to going into Genesis next year, because it's foundational to everything. What's verse 1? 
in the beginning, God created. If God created everything in the beginning, then I can believe everything else in that book. He will accomplish these things. This Messiah will protect his people, as we see in verse 4 of Micah 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great uh, to the ends of the earth. The Messiah will bring peace between people, his sinful people, and a holy God. The Messiah will unify and preserve his people, and God will make the Messiah known to the ends of the, ver- of the earth. But let's focus on verse 2 there. Because the people who will walk in darkness, who have seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land, well, I'm back in Isaiah, sorry. But Micah 2 is a, an amazing reminder of who we are today, for you and us today. We are a reminder of God's judgment, but also his promise. God is faithful to his people. And even though God's people and her leaders had sinned against God, there's this wonderful but statement there. God will create a contrast between the humiliating current rulers of Israel who continue to walk away from God and continue to lead his people away from him that we see in verse 1 with the one who will truly rule over God's people. There will be a period of time where there won't be any Davidic line of kings over Israel, but God's promise to David will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who will reign forever and ever. And God will remain faithful to them and will fulfill his promise through raising up this shepherd king. And how will this happen? For me, he says in Micah 5. God says, all of this will happen according to the sovereign providential plan that I have set out. And this Savior is described as one who is coming forth is from the old, from ancient of days. So you remember when I was talking about how everything has always been and how God has always been like that and how you can't wrap your mind around that? Think about this right now. Who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The one who is promised is one who has come long before he was anticipated to be coming. This was a plan that was established from eternity past. The outcome of his coming will be that the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Meaning that God will save thousands of Jews. And we saw the outcome of that in Acts at the Pentecost. Jesus will shepherd his flock. He will care for his people. He will be their peace. And Jesus will be the ruler who is the prince of peace, as we will see in Isaiah 9. Jesus will completely provide all that is needed for the security and salvation of his people. Paul reflects upon this in Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The peace that is talked about is the peace between God and humanity because we have sinned against a holy God. And because of that sin, we deserve eternal punishment, which is hell. But the free gift of God, as Ephesians 2, 6 is, is that through Jesus Christ, he will raise up with him and seat us with him in the heavenly places. All this will happen when the promised Messiah will be born 
in some sort of obscure town called Bethlehem who will grow up and will go to the cross to pay the price for our sins. So how do we know that God will fulfill this promise by sending Jesus Christ? Because Luke 2, verses 1 to 5. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world would be registered. And this was the first registration with Cornelius, who was governor of Syria. And all went up registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem fulfills that promise in Micah 5, verse 2. The God who is sovereign and providential orchestrates history to bring about the exact timing of his will. Why is this important? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. He is the one who comes to shepherd his people. He is the savior that is worthy to be trusted. And we can bring this promise to the bank. He is the good shepherd. And we can embrace the promise that reminds us of what God has done. We are sinners deserving of hell, but through repentance and belief have eternal life in Christ. It's through Christ that we can dwell secure with God forever. And when we look at this prophecy fulfilled in Christ, we are reminded that God will fulfill his promises. Do you know that Micah's name means who is like Yahweh? And when God fulfills this prophecy of even the location of Jesus' birth, what better reminder for us as to who we can trust? God is working in the littlest of details to the biggest. Does this not remind us of the hope by assuring us of God's presence, his care, and the purpose in every aspect of our journey? But how about who the promise will be? As we see in Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7. Isaiah 9, 2 to 7 says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of dark, deep darkness, on them was light shone, who have multiplied the nations. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased with joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad even they divide the spoils. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on that day of Midian, Every, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fire for fuel for the fire for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So again, context is important. And even though there was darkness with Assyria coming to invade Israel as God's judgment on his people, because they have refused what God has appealed to do in Isaiah 2, verse 5, when God says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, they reject that. So they walk in darkness because they have refused to trust God. 
but there is hope as this prophecy is speaking as though it has already happened. Even though God's people refuse to trust God, God is not going to leave them there, but will graciously bring light to them. How could Isaiah talk like something that is going to happen has already happened? Because it's Yahweh himself who will make it happen. If God said it will happen, it is as though it has already happened. Our job is just to be patient. Which I get is incredibly hard. Because I hate being patient. I was reminded of this this week. Uh, because I like to get to the church at a certain time. But a couple of times a week, I have to take a detour to drive my beautiful children to school. I should enjoy these things because it's me in the car with my kids, but I still struggle with it because I like to be at somewhere on time, at least my time. But patience isn't exactly my forte, too. But I need to remind myself when God makes a promise, he's making the promise as though it's going to happen, as though it has already happened. My job is to trust him in the moment because he has already proven himself. And that's how sure God's promises are. There will be a light shone on them as they dwell in the land of deep darkness. And Jesus is the one who will bring a surprising joy that will break through the darkness by his grace. Because John 1 verse 5 says, a light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 6, for to us, as God pours out undeserved grace upon sinners, he will bring a Messiah, a Savior. There will be a child born, a victorious captain who will break the yoke and the burdens of his people. He will burn as fuel for fire every boot of, tramp, of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood. And what is this promised child to be like? He is going to be a wonderful counselor. God has never at any time, in any way, asked for a counselor. He is the one who created the world. Isaiah 40 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is no one, if you need me to tell you. God doesn't need anyone to tell him what to do with the nations. He doesn't have a council of advisors. He will rule with deep and divine wisdom, completely different from the kings that have been ruling these people with foolishness and just plain on stupidity. And this child will be wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. This is the title that belongs only to Yahweh. In Isaiah 20, 10, we see this very same word. As, God, as Isaiah describes Yahweh as mighty God, 
And again in Jeremiah 32, verse 8, how you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, this child will be God himself. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And he has the same title as the one who will make all of these things happen. This child is not just a child. He is divine and human at the same time and has the strength of God. And he will be everlasting father. This child is like a loving father who provides for his family, who protects his family. But unlike human fathers, he will do it perfectly. You know, I firmly believe that the duty of a father and a husband is to provide for his family. I firmly believe that. In whatever way that is possible. And I try to do that every day. It's why I try to take care of myself physically, even though sometimes it's a losing battle. It's why I seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of my Lord and Savior so I can shepherd my family well. It's why I try to be wise with my money so that we can provide for our kids and my wife. It's why I try to be an example of a godly man to my children. It's why I have life insurance because I could get hit by a car. But in all of those attempts to be a good father, I still suck at it. But he will not be. He is everlasting Even my best efforts will always fail in comparison to who our God is. Jesus will perfectly love, provide, and protect his family. And he will do this forever because he will last. He is everlasting, everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. He is, this child will be different than all the other princes who brought trouble before He will bring a source of peace and he will leave nothing unresolved and he will bring the promised peace to humanity. And when we combine all of these titles together, it tells us of the totality of the power of this child. Jesus is that child. And we see this in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 7, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Only God could bring peace between himself and humanity because the price was too high. So God provided a sacrifice that we needed to bring peace because our greatest issue isn't conflict within humanity, but conflict with God. Because we have sinned against a holy God. And because we have sinned against a holy God, our only right in this world is eternal damnation. This is hell itself. But praise be to God that the gospel doesn't end. Because even though we have sinned against God, he provided a way to have our debt paid for through his son, Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who grew up, lived a sinless life, and died on a Roman cross for us, for all of those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We don't get eternal death. We get eternal life. We didn't even do that. God provided every single step, every possible outcome. 
to bring about his promised redemption of his people. Micah 4 describes this previous leadership of God's people as the very opposite of who God is and who this child will be. But he will be a, he will be perfect. And how does God provide for this? He will do this through the birth of a male child who will rule righteously as a descendant of David forever, as we see in verses 6 to 7. And I like how God will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in what way will God accomplish his promise? You know, sometimes we think of um, God as some sort of laid back, sitting in his lazy boy going, yeah, whatever. You know, sure, fine. No, he's going to accomplish this with zeal. Now, what does zeal mean? Zeal is not some sort of passive, lazy action. Zeal is with enthusiasm. He will accomplish this with enthusiasm. And he will be faithful in that. He is the one who has made the promise of our Savior. He is the one who has zealously fulfilled it. He is the one who will continue to be faithful, and he alone is worthy. The, the Christmas season reminds us that we can trust him because Christmas reminds us that God has always kept his promise. So we wait in hope in this time of in-between until he comes back because Christ, Christmas is a reminder of a certain hope. So what you may ask? Let's try and bring this all together. Christmas reminds us that God is faithful in fulfilling his promise. Christmas reminds us of the promise that God has fulfilled in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. If God has been faithful, he will remain faithful. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. This is the promise that we see in Hebrews of who waited, those who w waited for has been fulfilled. A reason why I love Christmas season so much is this blatant reminder to me in my cynical attitude that there is always hope. And all of those who are in Christ, we serve a God who has never, not once, broken his promise or has never been able to fulfill it he has always kept his promises and always been able to fulfill them let me ask you this question again how does someone who has always kept a promise change how you will trust them in the future when times become hard it's tempting to stop trusting god to stop trusting god there's a great song that i was just listening to this past week by a band called rivers and robots it's called my refuge it goes like this though kingdoms fall and seasons fade, your steadfast love will never change. Those who call upon your name, they will not be put to shame. When anxious thoughts take hold of me, I remember you're the Prince of Peace. Father, you will be my hiding place. So when I look at the promises that God has fulfilled through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, I, remind, I am reminded this Christmas season that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. 
which means I can trust him during whatever comes my way. And a beautiful thing is this. He is so patient. He is so patient. Think back to Ahaz. He was a jerk. He did evil in the eyes of God. Yet God still comes and he says, ask me. Ask me. And I will give you a promise. Brothers and sisters, we need to point ourselves back to these truths. What are you putting your trust in today? How does trust show us in your life, in our lives? Well, as the song says, trust and obey, for there's no other way. If I can trust God, I can trust that his commands are true and that they're for my good. It means I can obey in seeking to make him known during this Christmas season. In a restless and anxious and tumultuous world, we get to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the one who was born of the virgin and, and who came from some backwater town called Bethlehem, who will be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Embracing the promise that Christ, Christmas reminds us of, should also send us out to declare that hope. If I can trust him, that means I can worship him in all circumstances. Just like Job 1.21 says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His promises teach us, as Spurgeon said, to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. And we can trust him because his promises have always been true. God has always been faithful. He will always be he always is. He is unchanging. Is he not worthy? Christmas reminds us that God is faithful in fulfilling his promise. Let us worship him, the one who alone is worthy.